Good afternoon. Uh, good morning to those of you not in the Eastern time zone. My name is Jeff Singer. I'm a general surgeon and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. And I want to apologize for the delay. We were, we've been having difficulty getting one of our speakers hooked up remotely. <clears throat> so that's what was taking, what's been taking the time. Uh, the social distancing measures required to address the COVID-19 pandemic led to a newfound appreciation for the use of telehealth, a technological advance that has been available actually for several decades. State licensing laws for healthcare practitioners have impeded widespread use of telemedicine. Most states only permit healthcare practitioners to provide telehealth services to patients in the state in which the practitioners are licensed, which is a barrier to the free flow of healthcare services across state lines. Patients can travel to another state to receive medical treatment and even surgery from a doctor licensed in that state, but those doctors cannot provide telehealth services to the same patients unless they are licensed in the states in which the patients reside. While the pandemic led many states to suspend the barriers to the movement of healthcare practitioners and to the delivery of telemedicine across state lines, these were only temporary emergency measures. Fortunately, some states are taking steps to avoid a return to the status quo. In May of 2021, Arizona's, governors, Arizona's governor signed into law House Bill 2454, which allows the state's residents to receive telehealth services from providers who hold licenses outside the state, but within any of the other states or the District of Columbia. In 2019, Florida's governor signed House Bill 23 into law, similarly liberalizing telehealth regulations. On the federal level, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services expanded permanent coverage for many telehealth services. Uh, I was hoping to have three people here to discuss this, but unfortunately, we've been unable to connect with one of our scheduled speakers, but I'm still very pleased to have with us uh, two really uh, expert people on this topic. One is uh, Christina Corrieri, who's the Senior Policy Advisor to Arizona Governor Doug Ducey and was uh, intimately involved in the, the, uh, the crafting and passing of the legislation, uh, the health, telehealth reform legislation in Arizona. And the other is Kyle Zebley, who's the Vice President for Public Policy of the American Telemedicine Association. So um, uh, I'm, I'm going to ask uh, each of our panelists to make opening remarks, and then we'll have a discussion and take questions and answers from participants. I'll be moderating the q and I recur, uh, encourage participants to write your questions on either our event page or via Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter using the hashtag, hashtag Cato Health, capital C and capital H. And please be sure to visit the Cato Institute web, uh, cover, event page for links to additional resources related to the topic of, of this event. Kyle, let me start with you. Uh, could you please give us an overview of the current state of telehealth regulations on the state and federal levels and on the prospects for meaningful telehealth reform on both of these levels? Happy to, Jeff, and thank you so much to you and, and uh, to Cato for having me today uh, to talk about, of course, our number one topic, uh, which is telehealth. Uh, the American Telemedicine Association has been around since 1993. Uh, we have a really wide and diverse membership of reformative organizations that represent the width and breadth of the U.S. healthcare industry, which, of course, as we know, uh, is, is very invested in the future of telehealth. COVID-19 has truly been a game changer for telehealth. Uh, there, there's no question about it. Uh, oftentimes it's called the silver lining of the pandemic. Uh, so what of course happened in the early days of the pandemic, as, as you alluded to, 
is uh, there were, were social distancing measures. Uh, that meant that we tried to make sure, the federal policymakers, state policymakers tried to make sure that we didn't flood hospitals to make sure that really only those in true emergencies and those dealing uh, and, and diagnosed with COVID would go to the hospital for care. So what that meant was that they had, that state policymakers and federal policymakers had to bring down the barriers that were impeding telehealth up to that point in time. That meant that uh, we had to ensure that individuals were able to access medical care in their own homes. For Medicare, that meant that uh, actually Section 1834M barriers of the Social Security Act had to be temporarily suspended and Congress granted the authority to do so under the public health emergency to the administration, the Trump administration previously, Biden administration now, that allowed them to waive those restrictions. Uh, that's crucial because Section 1834M for Medicare, for instance, said that you had to be in a defined rural area outside a major metropolitan area, and you had to be physically in a provider's office. You've gotten in some mode of transportation and physically gone to a provider's office in order to have reimbursable virtual care. That was passed in 1997 uh, when you still needed a hard line and a CD-ROM in order to access the internet. Obviously, technology has gone leaps and bounds forward in the intervening 24 years, and that's an outdated uh, provision of law that ATA had long suggested needed to be uh, lifted, to needed to be permanently ended so that all Medicare beneficiaries would have access to telehealth where and when they need it. At the state level, uh, the, there were immediately put in place licensing flexibility laws uh, along the line of what Arizona did in that great piece of legislation you mentioned, uh, but they did that in a permanent way. Most states in a temporary way including Arizona before it was made permanent, allowed for a cross-state practice of medicine, particularly through virtual care. This was so crucial because prior to that, and for over a hundred years in terms of the practice of medicine, as, as I'm sure your audience knows well, uh, it was really purely a state domain issue in terms of who was eligible to practice care. And, and in essence, you needed to be licensed to provide care within the state in question. Uh, that's, it's often a cumbersome process. It's an expensive, time-consuming process for doctors. And so having those licensing flexibility measures put in place were enormously helpful. There had been already in place uh, medical professional licensure compacts to include the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact, Nursing Compact, the Psychiatrist Compact, PT Compact, a number of others. Uh, that if states had adopted them, made it easier for the practice of medicine and uh, in, in, in those medical professionals to one degree or another. The, the pandemic has accelerated the adoption of compacts, and obviously the ATA is extremely supportive of any measure that makes it easier to practice across state lines while ensuring that there is accountability in place for patients and providers alike. Uh, so humongous changes uh, that have occurred during the pandemic the top priority for the ATA and for our diverse membership is to make permanent as many of these flexibilities and, and liberalizations, small hell, uh, that uh, we've seen in terms of actions taken by DC and state capitals. The 2021 state legislative sessions across the country have been extraordinarily beneficial 
for telemedicine and for telehealth. Uh, over half the states, uh, just over half the states, have passed, in our mind, positive laws uh, that further enshrine telehealth as an option for patients. And so, of course, a lot of, uh, of our members live and die by what happens at the state level. We've talked about licensure. This is also where state Medicaid agencies uh, make determinations as to what is and is not covered for those individuals that are, uh, that are uh, covered by Medicaid. This is uh, the state level is where decisions are made about the practice of medicine. And we're firmly of the belief that telehealth is health, uh, that it should be held to the same standard of care, not anything lower, certainly not anything higher. And then uh, also in terms of the commercial coverage, uh, private insurance uh, oftentimes mandates uh, and other laws providing for commercial insurance, those are decisions made by state legislatures. So we're seeking to make sure that telehealth is covered by ins insurance, private, private and public alike, and that we're not held to a different standard and that all modalities of telehealth, not just synchronous audiovisual telehealth, like a call, like we're doing today, a meeting like we're doing today, uh, but also remote monitoring, asynchronous care, and yes, even audio only care uh, should be covered and shouldn't have, uh, shouldn't have second guessing being done by policymakers as to what the best tool that a, a doctor or a medical professional can use when trying to treat their patient. Uh, so extremely exciting year uh, at the state level. We're trying to translate that success at the federal level. So much of the flexibilities are contingent on the public health emergency and we'll actually be setting ourselves up for what we call a telehealth cliff at the federal level. If Congress doesn't follow the lead of state legislatures and attempt to make permanent change to telehealth policy and to lock in the gains that the industry has achieved and those patients depending on the industry have achieved during the pandemic. Happy to talk about any any uh, any number of these issues, uh, but uh, happy to turn it back to you, Jeff. Thanks so much. Great, thank you. Uh, I, in the original plan that we were gonna have Sal Nuzzo, who's with the uh, uh, James Madison Institute in Tallahassee, Florida, who knows an awful lot about Florida's uh, telehealth reform law that was implemented in 2019. Unfortunately, he's trying real hard, but he's unable to connect into our system. Uh, so before I introduce Christina Corriere, I just want to use a little bit of his time <laughs> to uh, uh, make a comment about the compacts. Um, I, I, and I could, as a practicing physician, I'm particularly sensitive to the interstate compact regarding med medical care. Um, my opinion is that it's, it's important to distinguish the interstate compacts from efforts like Arizona's and Florida's to break down licensing barriers. Because now when it comes to the nursing compact, we have like 40 states basically have a true compact that a license in one state is equivalent to a license in, in any of the other 39 states. So that does break down licensing barriers. But, uh, and there's uh, smaller groups of states involved in compacts for the physical therapists and for clinical psychologists. Um, there's a great deal of difficulty getting a compact underway for uh, advanced uh, registered nurse practitioners like nurse practitioners. Uh, and that's getting a lot of resistance from the American Medical Association, who's not too crazy about competition from nurse practitioners in the first place. Um, but when it comes to the, the, the medical profession, the one I belong to, 
we have an interstate compact, but it's really nothing but uh, an, organ, an, an entity that facilitates license applications. So even if our state belongs to the interstate compact, that doesn't mean a licensed physician in Arizona, let's say, uh, that that license is recognized in any of the compact member states. It just means that when that doctor wants to get a license in one of the other contact members, compact member states, uh, they have a, a setup in place to kind of uh, facilitate and expedite the license application process, but you still got to get a separate license in every single state. So to me, that's really, you know, it's better than nothing, but only slightly better than nothing. It's not getting us where we want to go. Uh, before I uh, allow comments on that though, I was, I just used Sal's time. And now I'd like to introduce Christina, who Christina Corrieri is the, is the senior advisor to Governor Ducey of Arizona and knows the new Arizona law inside out. I hope you know something about the Florida law so that, because I really wanted to, uh, everyone to know the differences between Florida's law, which also was a good step forward and Arizona's reform. So hopefully Christina, you could address that as well, but let, let's ask you now to discuss what, what they've done in Arizona and anything else that's been discussed thus far. Well, thank you, Dr. Singer, and thank you to Cato for having me. Um, I wanted to say I had the pleasure of getting to know Dr. Singer when I worked at the Goldwater Institute prior to joining the Arizona governor's office in early 2015. Uh, before I jump into telemedicine, I did want to make a comment on uh, the issue that Dr. Singer just spoke about related to the compacts. Um, I, I agree that there's limited utility in the compacts because it's dependent on whether or not the other state has joined them. So Arizona and say Minnesota might have joined, so we're able to uh, facilitate a slightly quicker licensing for doctors there. But a doctor from say New York that hadn't joined wouldn't be able to avail themselves of those same privileges, even though they might be an equally qualified doctor. So a couple of years ago, Arizona took a step uh, that we think was farther than the compacts. We call it universal recognition. Um, it's not the same as uh, a lot of other states where if you're licensed in one state, you can go through a reciprocity process with the board that might take several weeks. What universal recognition says is if you are licensed and in good standing in another state and you move to Arizona, we give you your license, that's, that's the end of it. It's facilitated very quickly. It has helped us during the pandemic um, as we've had doctors or nurses who uh, relocate to Arizona, either temporarily or permanently, the medical board is able to uh, use universal recognition to issue a license uh, within 24 hours. So um, we think that uh, universal recognition is a big step up on the compacts. Um, and we were actually able to build on universal recognition as we worked through this telehealth bill. So um, I, I agree with the previous speaker uh, that there were some silver linings during the pandemic. Two of them are the advancement in vaccine technology um, and the ability to use the EUA process to expedite that. Um, and the second is telehealth. Um, so over the course of the pandemic, there was an initial spike uh, in telehealth services. We got to the point where over a third of all healthcare was occurring uh, via telehealth. Um, since the pandemic has ebbed a, a little bit since the early days, the utilization has uh, dropped off, but largely stabilized between about 13 and 17%, depending on the specialty, with a few specialties still experiencing much higher rates. For instance, psychiatry and other behavioral health uh, areas. 
Um, as of April 2021, 84% of physicians nationwide are offering virtual visits, and 58% of them said they view telehealth more favorably than they did prior to the pandemic. Um, I think there's a misconception that folks who are on Medicaid may use uh, telehealth less. Um, I, I think there's suppositions that folks who are low income may have less access to technology. Um, that's not what we're experiencing in the uh, Arizona Medicaid program known as access. Uh, when we looked at our data um, uh, that's current through 2021, we saw that at least 31% of access members we're utilizing at least one telehealth service uh, per month. So they're actually outpacing the telehealth services um, in commercial insurance. Uh, prior to the pandemic, only 11% of healthcare consumers had reported ever utilizing telemedicine. Um, now 40% of healthcare consumers are reporting that they believe they will continue uh, to use telehealth going forward in some fashion. Uh, the reasons for that are, are, are many. It may be a convenience factor for some. It may be that others live in rural areas and need to access a specialist that does not live in their area. They may have transportation uh, challenges or may improve access to specialty care. Um, I think we need to ask what enabled the quick pilot, uh, quick pivot to telehealth. Um, and I think it was three things. One, it was circumstances made it necessary. Uh, technology was at a place to support it. And there was government action at the state and federal level, including executive orders, uh, CMS rules, and Medicaid policies and waivers at the state level. Um, many of those are temporary and need to be made permanent, which is what Arizona did with HB 2454. Uh, 2454 was meant to address many barriers. Um, as Dr. Singer mentioned, there were barriers across state lines, but there were also barriers within the state itself. So prior to 2454 and the executive orders before that, only a subset of our healthcare professionals were actually able to utilize telehealth. So a doctor could do it, but a speech therapist was not able to do it. We also had barriers of where the patient could be to receive the telemedicine um, that didn't necessarily include the patient's home. Um, and then the, the, the piece the, uh, that Dr. Singer mentioned was across state lines. So Arizona's bill is broad. It covers all licensed healthcare professionals and treats them all the same. Um, it requires coverage uh, for all telehealth services. It allows, uh, if, if the service was covered um, under the plan if delivered in person, um, it allows an individual to receive telehealth services anywhere they're located, um, including in their own home. Um, and it allows telehealth across state lines. Um, this, this is important because for a long time, if you've had the resources to be able to go outside your own state, you, you have had access to every doctor uh, in the country. You could fly to see anyone you wanted um, if you had the money to do it and the time to take off. Um, this expands that now and lets anybody uh, have that option and be able to do it from their own home. So we've seen examples where folks are able to see a, a specialist outside the state, uh, but we've also seen how the changes have affected folks seeing doctors within our state. One of the um, examples that the governor likes to give is a family that he met with. Um, they have a daughter who has 
many medical challenges. Uh, she lives in Yuma because that's where they have family supports. Uh, prior to the telehealth changes, this family had to drive with their daughter from Yuma to Phoenix Children's Hospital three to four times a week. If you're not familiar with Arizona, uh, that's a five hour round trip tick, uh, trick, uh, trip under the best of circumstances. And when you have a medically fragile child and have to make many stops, it can be much longer. So you can imagine how difficult um, that is on a family. Once uh, the telehealth rules were changed and the hospital adopted telehealth, this family's visits to Phoenix Children's Hospital went from three to four a week to one a month. And the rest of the visits are able to happen in home, which has allowed them to have a, a much better uh, family life balance and not be 100% focused on those necessary trips to Phoenix. Um, so I'm happy to talk more about our law. Uh, we think that it is the broadest uh, in the country, um, but I'll be happy to take uh, any questions that you have. Thanks, Christina. And I'm happy to say, and I'm gonna give a shout out to Dave Tassie who, for his IT uh, excellence, he's figured out a way to connect Sal Nuzo. So now we're gonna, uh, this is great. You couldn't have timed it better, Sal. I'm gonna ask you if you could explain to us Florida's uh, 2019 telehealth reform bill and, and, and how it differs from Arizona's because I know Arizona's is more comprehensive. Uh, so uh, Sal Nuzo is the sure. uh, vice president for, uh, for policy at the uh, J James Madison Institute in uh, Tallahassee, Florida and director of the Center for Economic Prosperity. Uh, Sal, please uh, take it away. <laughs> Great, and thank you very much and, and uh, enormous kudos to the tech folks who, uh, who managed to, uh, uh, to get me patched in and, and how uh, serendipitous that we're talking about telemedicine and we have a video uplink uh, challenge. So thank you to David and the tech support folks there at Cato. Um, so I wanted to give, and thank you for the opportunity to speak, uh, I wanted to give the, the kind of story of Florida's telemedicine, but talk about it from the very beginning of how the reform, not just for telehealth, but all of kind of the healthcare agenda for Florida kind of began. And, and in order to do that, I need to give a quick background of how Florida's political process works. So just uh, by way of background, we are a term-limited legislative state. So we have 160 members of our legislature, 120 members of the House, 40 members of the state Senate. Uh, they are allowed to serve eight-year terms, uh, two uh, four-year four terms for the Senate and four two-year terms uh, for the state House. Because of those term limits, Florida has this unique function where the Speaker of the House, who serves a two-year term, is selected by his or her class years in advance. So we kind of know in Florida who the Speaker of the House and who the Senate President will be well in advance of that person taking the helm in the rostrum. So over the course of the last 20 years, Florida's kind of exhibited a huge strain on healthcare supply. We're a growth state. So we uh, the, the growth figures up until uh, the last uh, data set that came out show Florida um, uh, grows by about 800 individuals a day. Most of that through in-migration. They're coming from other states, they're moving to Florida, they're settling in. In addition, we have one of the largest cohorts of, of elderly population in the United States. 
uh, Arizona and Nevada are the other two states that traditionally kind of, um, kind of have similar demographics to Florida. And so a lot of that puts a tremendous strain on healthcare supply. Uh, we have up until a couple of years ago when I was pulling uh, data on the kind of the per capita figures on doctors and specialists, we were in the bottom 20% of all states in terms of the number of primary care physicians per capita, the number of hospital beds per capita, the number of specialists. And with that population growth, it's put a tremendous strain on our, on our healthcare system in the state. So we began the process of really cultivating the conversation with policymakers over the course of about six or seven years. And that kind of leads us to uh, the House Speaker who uh, just uh, left as a result of term limits, and that's Speaker Jose Oliva. We knew uh, Speaker Oliva would be coming in, and we knew of his kind of love of free market principles, and we also knew that he had a fondness for wanting to take on uh, healthcare policy. And so um, our, our, a lot of partners like Americans for Prosperity, other policy organizations worked with the speaker as he came in to really formulate a patient first healthcare agenda for the state of Florida. That really took uh, kind of four legs. One was expanding direct healthcare or what has been traditionally known as direct primary care. Second was repeal of Florida certificate of need laws. Third was uh, a scope of practice expansion for both nurses and pharmacists in the state. And then lastly, but what actually came first in the way of policy wins was the expansion and establishment of telemedicine in the state. So Florida enacted uh, a, a broad-based telemedicine uh, reform in 2019. It is similar to what Arizona had taken on just last year, but with a little bit of nuance. So under the Florida law, any doctor can, uh, or, or any healthcare provider can register with the state uh, as a telemedicine provider. We had already had it for doctors within the state, but this established a, basically a universal recognition for those seeking to practice from out of state. Interestingly enough, there were two bills that passed. One was the enabling of, uh, of the program. The other was the fee structure that, um, that folks from out of state would have to pay in order to begin practicing uh, in Florida. Uh, you do have to have a registered agent in the state, but interestingly enough, uh, Governor DeSantis signed the expansion, but he vetoed the fee bill. So while um, it's, a, it's a unique uh, caveat, while a doctor wishing to you know, practice in the state uh, does have to pay a fee to uh, the licensing board. If you're practicing via telemedicine from out of state, you don't. All you have to do is register with a registered agent in the state who does not have to be a healthcare provider, and you're able to do just about anything uh, uh, that, uh, that folks are able to do within the state that's already allowed by uh, telehealth. Uh, out of state providers will also uh, need to have uh, an agreement for certain areas where they are prescribing controlled uh, substances, uh, but that's kind of minimal in scope. Uh, I would say that over the last uh, two years, we have seen growth in both adoption and use, although there's certainly room for improvement. Um, the data that I saw, the last data sets that I looked at showed that while 
uh, Florida is in the top 10 for physicians performing telemedicine. As far as uh, patients actually using it, we're in around middle of the road. I think it's about a 17% uh, use rate within the state as of, uh, I think it was September of 2020. Um, and what we're finding is that it, and it didn't make sense at first, but it's a bit, it, because it seems a little bit counterintuitive, but the areas of the state that showed more growth in use of telemedicine were actually the urban centers as opposed to the rural ones. We've got some thoughts on why that may be the case, and it's kind of tied to broadband deployment and abil uh, individuals' uh, abilities to access uh, uh, kind of the bandwidth within some of the rural areas in the state, but it's certainly something that we're working on. Uh, one other piece of the puzzle that I know is uh, very, uh, very nuanced, but something that folks pay a lot of attention to, Florida does not have a parity uh, a provision uh, for, uh, for insurance. It is solely up to the insurance providers, uh, insurance covers and the, and the providers as to what the rates are for, uh, for reimbursement on those. It's something that we thought was very important for the policy. Of course, the Florida Medical Association and some other entrenched special interest groups kind of fought to the bitter end on some of those provisions, but we were very glad that as the kind of the policy reform went through in the area uh, or in, in the year that it did, that we were able to kind of get just about everything that we wanted um, in the sense of a, a, a purely market-driven market and patient-centered uh, approach to the policy reform. So with that, I'm happy to kind of answer some questions from, from you, Jeff, or from others uh, on, the, on the path forward uh, and kind of um, and go from there. Well, one question before I, we take it all around that comes to mind right away is, so what are the di major differences between Arizona's reform and Florida's reform? You want to uh, answer that first, Sal, and then I'll ask Christina. Um, sure. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure in terms of if, if the Arizona model has a, a payment parity. I know that Florida is a little bit different and we're a little bit more constrained in the number of uh, different categories that telemedicine uh, can can be used for, as opposed to Arizona's, which is more of a kind of de facto anybody can practice. We did articulate, I think it was around 15 to 17 different uh, categories for telemedicine. And certainly we want to expand on that uh, as we move forward. But that's kind of the, the biggest uh, difference that we saw as, as we kind of looked to uh, the two different laws. And Christina, anything else you want to add? Yeah, I think that there were three um, main differences, and um, Sal hit on on one of on, on two of them. So the first is that Arizona's uh, telehealth bill uh, applies to all healthcare providers across mm -hmm. the board. Um, as he said, Florida's was a little bit more limited. Arizona also has exceptions where registration to provide telehealth across state lines is not needed at all. Um, and so, you, you know, we have some areas of our state where the closest hospital that provides a specialty care may be in Nevada instead of in Phoenix. So we provided an exception 
for individuals who get a medical procedure in another state that they can have all follow-up care provided uh, via telehealth from uh, that doctor uh, and there's no need to register. We also have a large number of uh, what we call snowbirds, people who visit our, our warm weather in the winter and they may have a, a doctor at home who knows their medical history. So it's gonna be better for them to see that primary care doctor than go to a new person in Arizona who doesn't know them. Them. So we provided an exception for individuals who are residents of other states and the provider is their uh, primary care provider or their behavioral health provider. Um, they can still see that person. Um, you know, that came to us when we were talking to one woman who lives in Arizona and she told me that she, you know, has a weekly visit with her therapist and she was in California and called in for her telehealth visit. The therapist asked how she was doing and she said, well, I'm in California, I'm doing pretty well. And the therapist's response was, I'm not licensed in California, we have to hang up right now. Um, which didn't make a lot of sense. She missed her, her, her normal meeting. So we think people should be able to continue their care uh, with their existing providers. We also accepted out um, telehealth that's provided in consultation with a healthcare uh, provider licensed here in Arizona. So for instance, if you were visiting the Mayo Clinic and they wanted to bring in somebody from their Rochester uh, hospital or their Florida hospital, uh, they would be able to do that without that individual having to register here. So um, we have uh, a set of exceptions that I think will be broadly used. Um, and then as, as Sal spoke to, we do have parity pieces in our law. So it does require uh, payment parity uh, for most telehealth uh, services. There are exceptions um, if the weight of the evidence shows that uh, it would not be appropriate uh, based on practice guidelines, peer-reviewed research, or the recommendations of the Arizona Telehealth Advisory Committee, then parity would not be necessary. But the default is typically uh, payment parity does exist. And uh, Jeff, on the, yeah. it's an important point on the on the registration part um, because uh, yeah. Florida had an executive order in place during the uh, during kind of the emergency of the pandemic to waive those registrations, but that did expire back in June. So that kind of that part of the law that differed from Arizona is now taking effect. Um, and granted, it's one of those things where, yeah, you don't have to you don't have to pay, but you do have to register, which is kind of a, a different uh, different kind of animal there. But um, one other thing to point out was one of the biggest elements of the of the policy reform is it, it, it and this kind of speaks to some of the things that a lot of the special interest groups will try to insert in order to water down some of these pieces of legislation and reforms as they come through is the idea that you would have to go at least one time to an in-person consultation or visit before you can utilize telemedicine. And that just kind of defeats the purpose of the policy altogether. And so that's one of the things where um, we were pleased that that didn't end up in the final package that the governor signed, but is something that you kind of have to pay attention to if you're a state and looking to take this on. And that okay, doesn't exist questions law either. We made sure yeah, to keep that We have a lot of questions. A lot of questions are starting to pile up, which is great. And before I go to them, I just want to remind everybody, if you have questions, you can enter them on our event page or on Facebook, YouTube or Twitter with the hashtag uh, Cato, uh, uh, hashtag Cato Health. And uh, before I go to questions, I want to just throw out a kind of a combined question because it deals with 
with uh, the things that we've discussed so far. And uh, so Sal, before you, we were able to connect with you, uh, uh, I had commented, as, as did Christina, uh, that uh, one of the uh, alternatives to the licensing reforms that Florida and Arizona have done that's been talked about are the state health compacts. And, and uh, I, I have, have said that, you know, that, that's not, nothing, doesn't come close to this kind of reform. And when it comes to physicians, it's just basically a, uh, an, uh, an, uh, an entity that facilitates applying for licenses in different states. But I wanted to give you a chance to comment on that. And I also, uh, I wanted, I have a problem philosophically with parity laws because, um, first of all, I have a problem with the state telling uh, people what kind of contra contracts for re for payment for services, uh, what they what the terms of the contracts could be just from a philosophical standpoint. But in addition, from an actual medical practice standpoint, um, a lot of times what the service performing be, being being rendered through telehealth is not the exact same, doesn't involve the entail the amount of work that it does when it's, you know, indirect contact where, for example, you're performing a, a physical examination. So it, it, it may not even be fair to, to make, to give parity. So I wanted to give Sal a chance to say something about that, but then uh, Christina, then, then uh, Kyle, because Kyle also has a, needs to have a chance to rebut on the issue regarding uh, compacts. So Sal first, you then Christina sure. and then, then Kyle. Sure. Um, I, first off, on the issue of parity, I'm I'm entirely with you, Jeff, on that one. That was one where, as the as the reforms kind of uh, were beginning to make their way through the sausage making of the Florida legislature, that was one of those things that they kept coming to. And for the most part, you know, there were there were relatively few people pointing out the the, the concerns and the problems with implementing a uh, with, with implementing a parity. Uh, uh, for reimbursement. So um, at the end of the day, we were able to kind of prevail in the arguments and the debate on that. I think Florida's law is much better as a, as a result of it. And, I, and I, for precisely the reasons that you reference, um, in many cases, uh, a doctor or, or whomever, a physician assistant or a behavioral health person is able to negotiate a better rate for doing telemedicine for a variety of reasons. Uh, and those kinds of things need to come into play as an insurance provider is negotiating with doctors or providers that, who are then negotiating with patients. And the idea also that the state should be in the business of dictating um, the prices in contracts between whether it's uh, insurers and providers or providers and patients, it flies in the face of acknowledging that the healthcare landscape is changing so much and so quickly that you know a year or two down the road, those pricing regulations and that parity is going to be woefully out of date. And so, those are the things relative to that. And on the the, the subject of compacts, I think uh, Florida's toyed with them a little bit. Um, I kind of um, I like them as a second best approach. Uh, ideally, a doctor in Georgia or in Arizona or in New Mexico or in whatever state they are should be able to locate to any other state recognizing that that doctor has the skills and abilities to perform 
the functions of a medical professional. There's there's nothing that that separates uh, Georgia from Florida other than an imaginary line decided a couple hundred years ago. And so the idea that I live in Tallahassee, 11 miles from Georgia, yet I can't go and see or that doctor can't come down and see me, I, we're far more in favor of universal recognition with the idea of, of multi-state compacts probably being a, a second best idea. Okay, Christina, you, anything you want to say about uh, the parody? Well, issue? I think that Sal made an excellent argument for our first in the nation universal recognition. There is no reason why a doctor from uh, Nevada versus a doctor from Utah should have a different time period that they have to wait before they can practice in Arizona when they come here. Their skills are the same. Um, they shouldn't be based on what that state has decided to do from a public policy standpoint. We in Arizona think they moved to Arizona, they were qualified in their other state, they were in good standing in their other state, and they should be issued a, a license the same day they moved here. So um, we're in perfect harmony and agreement on that one. Um, in terms of parity, I, I think that for us, as we were crafting the telehealth bill, the, the thing that we were focused on was access for patients, um, that patients should be able to see their doctor via telehealth, whether their doctor was in-state or out-of-state. Um, and one of the things that we looked at was some studies that were done uh, that, that looked at how parity affected access. Um, and, and I'd say that access, uh, not the acronym for the Medicaid program, but patient access to a doctor. Um, and what we found in there was while 84% of physicians were currently offering uh, telehealth visits, only 54%, I'm, I'm sorry, 54% of them reported that they would no longer offer virtual visits if they were being paid even 15% less. Um, and that became important to us and we, we wanted to ask why. And the reason was just because 20% of their visits are now online, they're not, they, they can't give up their medical assistant, they can't give up um, their, their medical equipment, they still have the same cost. And so our focus was making sure that telehealth was available to them and the data was showing that the best way to do that was to provide for payment parity. Kyle, uh, I'd like to hear what you have to say about this. Thanks so much. Uh, on the issue of licensure and the compacts, the American Telemedicine Association is very supportive of the various medical compacts, uh, understanding that they're not all as easy to use as some are in uh, that. Uh, for instance, you had mentioned the nursing compact, truly reciprocal in nature. If you are a, a licensed nurse in good standing in a state that's a part of the compact, you're good to go in upwards of 40 states across the country. That's the ideal model. That would make it easier to practice, uh, obviously, across state lines, which uh, is clearly a goal for the telehealth community, definitely a goal for the American Telemedicine Association. Uh, but the interstate medical licensure compact, as you mentioned, uh, and for difficult reasons, uh, the, the Federation of State Medical Boards had a tough job uh, at, cut out for them uh, when they tried to construct their own compact. Uh, is not as is not reciprocal in nature, and it, as you mentioned, it is essentially uh, is a, a pretty much a process to make it easier for you to practice medicine uh, in other states. But you still have to register. You, ha you still have to pay uh, multiple fees if you want to be a licensed doctor, good to go in multiple states. Uh, we would like to see it move towards a reciprocal model in future. Uh, we've told FSMB that uh, we uh, certainly are, are hopeful that it could be improved. 
the nursing compact went back to the drawing board to make it reciprocal in nature. And we're still able in a, a very short period of time to get the, the you know, two, uh, uh, three out of, excuse me, <laughs> 40 out of the 50 states to adopt. Um, and so I think that's something that the FSMB should certainly consider with that compact. At the same time that we're supporting compacts, we do support licensing flexibility laws. And we think Arizona and Florida are, are just, you know, obviously model bills to that end that we're extraordinarily supportive of. Other states have also have also pursued their own licensing flexibility laws. We'd like to see that trend continue across the country. And so kudos to the supporters of those two bills uh, that made that uh, a reality in those two states. They're really setting the standard for the rest of the country. We think you can do it in a two-track system. You can, you can be adopting compacts while also pursuing these kind of flexibility laws. Uh, we do continue to think that this is, you know, licensure is a state-based concern. Uh, there are differing opinions, even in the ATA, uh, about that among our membership. Uh, some folks think that there should be uh, more of a national approach to this uh, for Commerce Clause purposes um, or uh, through using carrot and stick approach uh, to basically predicate funding, you know, perhaps Medicaid funding on your state legislature adopting some compact uh, to create national standards. Uh, but for 10th Amendment reasons, for the area of precedent over uh, over 100 years of states uh, having this in their domain, for accountability purposes, uh, and just for political reality reasons, uh, we think you have to do the hard work of grinding it out in state capitals to adopt these various compacts and to pursue licensing flexibility laws. So that's where our membership is at the moment. In terms of payment parity, it actually surprises folks when uh, when we tell them that the ATA does not endorse payment parity. Uh, we think that uh, states should pursue and payers should pursue what we call fair payment, recognizing uh, that a doctor's time is a doctor's time in our mind. You know, 20 minutes of a doctor's time is 20 minutes of doctor's time, period, or any medical professional's time. But uh, that it shouldn't be mandated, uh, that there should be flexibility uh, in negotiating rates, that it uh, that payment parity could undercut the ability uh, of us to go forth and tell folks that this will drive savings in the industry. It's not just because of payment, of course, but also because of preventative care and all the things, uh, not, not missing appointments, et cetera, that will drive savings in the long term, uh, particularly if we start thinking about moving towards value-based payment. Uh, but we don't think a rigid payment parity is the solution. And so we're supportive of, of fair payment, uh, which again, recognize doctor's time is doctor's time, that you, uh, that you might not have the costs associated with a brick and mortar location, and that should be a factor. But also you have to recognize that in order to get this technology up the, off the ground and continue to innovate, it does require levels of investment. So that's where we're supportive of. Uh, but definitely a, a, a contentious issue, one uh, that, um, that people of goodwill might uh, disagree with, including even in our big tent association, but two extremely important issues that come up every day in my work as VP of public policy. Well, Kyle, it's interesting that you mentioned the federal level reform. So I'm going to go to the first question. And this one is uh, from uh, Shirley Sforney, who's a professor of economics at Cal State University, Northridge. She's also an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. And she uh, wrote a policy analysis for us a couple of years ago called Liberating telemedicine. And uh, um, she asked this question, which is, why can't the ATA or I want to, of course, this is 
for all three. So I'll go to Kyle first, and then I, I think I'll take uh, Sal and then Christina. Um, in, in that policy analysis, a proposal was put forth uh, that said that Congress is within its uh, constitutionally uh, authorized powers under the Commerce Clause to define for telehealth purposes, the locus of care as the state in which the healthcare practitioner is licensed, as opposed to the state in which the patient resides. And that, and that would be in the interest of breaking down barriers to interstate commerce, which is telemedicine. Um, obviously, each individual state retains its right to license the practitioner in that state and to, 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 to police the practitioner and to, the, to set the terms of what it requires to get a license. But the locus of care is the state within which the practitioner is licensed. That actually caught the attention of some members of the U.S. Senate last session. It was put into a, a bill by Senator Ted Cruz to... Uh, um, but it was it was only to take effect in the, in, in the time of public health emergencies. Uh, unfortunately, the bill didn't get any traction, but it did. Obviously, this proposal has actually attracted some interest. So I'd like uh, I will start with you, Kyle, since you brought it up and then Sal and then then uh, Christina. As I as I've often said, if if someone, particularly in the telehealth community, has an opinion on licensure, it's a strong opinion, and uh, they definitely go into two camps. Uh, those uh, like the ATA, where our policy council is now, thinking like I said, you have to grind out this these issues of licensure at the state uh, at the state level, uh, and those that think that we should pursue more of a federal approach, or you know, utilize the commerce clause, or again. Um, predicate uh, funding on, a, you know, on forcing a, a national standard. For instance, if you were to make a, a licensed medical professional, a, a doctor, um, a physician, uh, accountable to where they are located rather than where the patient's located, you might be in a situation where, say, a, a California board is having to uphold Mississippi standards on abortion or marijuana or put in your contentious uh, state-based social issue, uh, which I, I think would would open up, uh, a set, you know, essentially a can of worms. Um, and also, I think that there is an argument that could be made, a, a free market conservative argument that could be made about Tenth Amendment concerns mm -hmm. uh, that you would have federal encroachment on what has been traditionally for over a hundred years, going back to the 19th century, uh, a state-based concern. Um, and so membership is, is divided, but our policy council has come out in favor of, uh, for again, uh, constitutional legal precedent and political reasons, uh, the, the hard work, but the necessary work of doing what Florida and Arizona have done and doing what uh, dozens of states have done in, in terms of uh, either pursuing licensing flexibility laws uh, on the, with a great model of Arizona and Florida or adopting the compacts rather than going for more of a national federalized approach. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I couldn't add much more to that other than the fact that, you know, as a, as a principled federalist, I, I'm in favor of state-based bottom-up solutions uh, as opposed to federalized top-down ones. And so um, the, you know, the, the, the other challenge kind of comes into play with, um, something you said, Jeff, and that was that uh, 
unfortunately, the bill didn't gain any traction. And that seems to be the case far more often than the alternative, which is you actually get a policy reform through. And so, um, I, you know, I work on state policy. Uh, I, I fully believe in, and hold to the principles that the states created the federal government and the states created the local governments, therefore the states are supreme. And so um, that would be kind of my vantage point on trying to uh, get a, a federalized solution that would work in all, uh, across all states, at least at this point. And how about you, Christina? I saw you nodding your head. Sorry, I was on mute. Um, I completely agree. Um, I'm a fan of the 10th Amendment. I believe in federalism and areas that were traditionally under state control should be under state control. I also think you would be hitting a firestorm of controversial issues. Um, abortion simply being one. Uh, the time uh, that, that there is... Um, you know, abortion uh, available without uh, without reason um, is very different in different states, and you would have to have them deferring to each other, which I think would be a challenge for both um, states that are more pro-life and states that are more pro-choice. So I, I, you'd hit it in other areas with controlled substances, where some states require a check of the uh, prescription monitoring program, and other states don't. Um, so for, for ideological reasons um, uh, of the 10th Amendment, I would oppose it, but I, I, I just can't see it getting through for, for an array of, of social reasons. I'm going to, related to this, Dr. Joel Zinberg, who's with the Competitive Enterprise Institute, asks, what are the potential malpractice issues in telehealth? What is the venue of any action, physician license location, patient location? and physician location when services are rendered, which state's law, laws govern the action? I think both Florida and, and Arizona have addressed that. So, Christina, why don't you, why don't you go first about Arizona, how, I, how they handle it? So, uh, in Arizona, it's under the registration process. Uh, they, they have to show just a couple things. One is that they are licensed and registered, uh, or licensed and in good standing in their state, that they have medical malpractice insurance, and that they accept Arizona as venue for any litigation that might arise out of telehealth services provided into Arizona. Um, so that's handled under, under the law that was just passed. And Florida is exactly the same in, in res with respect to the language there. Okay. And if I could just uh, add, uh, okay. yeah. oh, yes, please. I was just going to say no. a, a licensed medical professional has to abide by the laws of the state in which they are licensed. And if folks are acting inappropriately, there are already levels of accountability in place. The, uh, the practice of medicine is not the Wild West, even if it's being done virtually. There are clear levels of accountability in place at the federal level and at the state level to make sure that uh, licensed professionals doing what they should be doing. And it is incumbent upon uh, you know, licensed medical professionals to know uh, that they're risking their license if they are violating the laws of the state in which the patient is located. Um, and that they're, they're taking a great risk if, if they're doing so. I, I've talked to folks and say, what is ATA's position on ensuring that folks you know, abide by the law? And I don't think we need to take a position uh, other than to say that individuals need to abide by the laws or face accountability if they fail to do so. 
Um, one, one questioner anonymous asks, are mental health providers included in either the Arizona or Florida laws? And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but they, of course they are. Is that correct? Uh, both Sal and Christina? Mental yes, health providers it is true are for Arizona. Them. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And same in Florida. Okay. Um, I, uh, I've heard people say that uh, because they're a doctor from or a healthcare practitioner from out of state, is still required to register with the relevant uh, licensing board within the state and pay a registration fee, at least in the case of Arizona, uh, that, that some people have said, well, that's just licensing by another name. So uh, I would like each of you to have a chance to address that. So let's start with Kyle. Do you think that's licensing by a, another name? Uh, no matter what the name is it makes the process significantly easier for the provider and it increases the choice for patients. Uh, so obviously we need to have, whether it's licensing or registration, the, the, the state in question needs to know who's practicing medicine within their borders and the patient needs to know there will be accountability if there is a violation of state laws or the violation uh, of a licensed medical professional of, of, their, of the standard of care uh, of which they need to abide. Um, so if it's a question of semantics, um, you know, I, I think it's missing the point. What it's important is that it's making it easier for the practice across state lines. And so uh, it, at the very least, uh, it is still a distinction in making it easier. Uh, and that's why these laws were improvement on the status quo. Uh, Sal, you want to say something to that? Sure. The, the, the only uh, unique caveat to uh, Florida's policy is that the registration fee uh, applies for a licensed practicing healthcare provider who exists within the state of Florida, but because of the fact that the governor vetoed the fee bill uh, on the telemedicine uh, deal, if you're practicing from out of state in Florida through telemedicine, you have to register, but you don't have to pay that fee. So it kind of opened up a bit of a more of a philosophical debate on, you know, what should the licensing versus registration uh, scheme look like statewide? Because if you're a doctor within the state and you're practicing telemedicine, you have to pay versus if you're out of state, you don't. And it's kind of, a, they would argue, a bit unfair. So I would suggest that I I'm not sure that we want to eliminate registration altogether. I like having a registration uh, process for exactly the uh, the points that were just made. Um, but by the same token, I, I'm not in favor of the government just reaping you know uh, revenues off of uh, off of uh, registration fees. And we can probably uh, move in the direction of eliminating those fees altogether for those in state as opposed to just for out of state practicing. I'll vote for that, um, <laughs> limiting fees in state. Uh, Christina, your comments? I agree with, with, with Kyle's comments. I think the laws are dependent on the individual from out of state being a licensed and a good standing health professional in another state. Uh, you need to check to make sure that that's accurate. You don't want charlatans or fly-by-night uh, folks who, if something does go wrong, there's no recourse for the patient. Um, so the thought with registration was to make it as simple as possible. 
We modeled it on our universal licensing. We get these processed in, in 24 hours for, for most of our boards. Um, I would speak to the fee in that there was some thought uh, in our legislature to prescribe what that fee may be, to set it at something like $25 so it was um, actually applicable to the work that the board has to do. We didn't feel that um, doctors in the state um, should bear the cost of, of um, verifying these applications from out of state. But Arizona has a, a, a peculiarity to our law, it was called Proposition 108, uh, which allows boards to set fees, uh, which is majority votes from the legislature authorizing the fees. But if the legislature were to prescribe what that new fee would be, you would have to have a two thirds vote in the legislature. Um, and when this was originally moving through the House, um, a lot of the Democrats were not on board uh, because of their concerns on the out-of-state uh, competition. And so we had made the strategic decision to leave out that specific dollar amount. That said, our boards are on a um, rulemaking moratorium. So in order to get a rule approved that they can move forward with, they have to get approval from the governor's office. And the governor's office is not going to give approval um, if there are our fees that are exorbitant. Um, I would say though, we do uh, support lowering fees across the board um, and have made proposals in the past requiring across the board reduction of fees for all of our licensing board, uh, healthcare and otherwise. I, uh, I'm i gonna address this question to Kyle. I myself have testified before different state legislative bodies in support of, of telehealth reform and I've noticed that sometimes I felt very lonely as a, a physician advocating uh, reforms along the lines of Arizona uh, and finding that there's almost a, a wall of resistance from the state medical association, the state dental association, et cetera, all the way down the line. Um, so I'd like to ask you, as a, you know, you're looking at it from the national level, uh, what kind of resistance are you seeing among the various states. And then I want to ask both Sal and Christina, how did you overcome this kind of resistance in your states? In fact, I was surprised to learn in Arizona that virtually every professional association endorsed the telehealth reform bill, including the Arizona Medical Association, which was not what I was seeing when I was testifying in other state legislatures. So I'd like to go with you first, Kyle. Of things. One, I, I think that there's every reason to be extremely optimistic as to where telehealth stands now in terms of the public perception of telehealth from providers and, uh, and patients alike. Uh, it's really just become a household term, uh, universally well-regarded. Pulls are out of this world in terms of the level of satisfaction uh, that folks have, uh, both on, on the provider side and on the patient side with telehealth. It, it's an area that's bipartisan in nature, a healthcare issue, that's bipartisan in nature. Uh, we had an extraordinarily supportive president in, in President Donald Trump, uh, who really did everything that he could within reason and within the law to expand access to telehealth care during his administration. That continued on the other side of Inauguration Day. We knew going into Inauguration Day, we knew going into the election um, that we were gonna have a supportive administration uh, with uh, now President Biden. His team was saying all the right things and we're, we're talking to the community uh, during the election and into the transition. So very unique for a healthcare issue to be this bipartisan. It's because it, it links rural America and urban America. It affects every American where and when they are, when they need access to virtual care. Folks know that the old rules, the old laws 
the old regulations, we're holding back telehealth and we've really singled out those barriers. And in states like Florida and um, in Arizona, uh, we've successfully been able to overcome the hurdle. At the, at the national level, uh, we are very tied to the, the, to the positions of the American Medical Association, broadly speaking, to the American Hospital Association, Federation of American Hospitals, um, the, both APAs, the American Psychiatric Association, American Psychological Association, the list goes on. Uh, folks that, uh, that want to make sure uh, that telehealth continues to be an option, including the professionals that they're representing. Uh, so where is, uh, where, where's the, the downside? Uh, even our opponents will have to start off saying uh, that they are supportive of telehealth and that, that they think that things have changed because COVID-19. Uh, it's, of course, what happens after the but uh, that you have to pay attention to. And, and, uh, and so oftentimes we're seeing opponents uh, grab on to a few concerns that I can talk about. Uh, but frankly speaking, uh, even if we can uh, assume that they're the best of intentions, and by the way, the, the, the opponents vary by states, to, to your point, uh, Jeff, it's folks that want to go back to the way that things were in the U.S. healthcare system in you know, February, March of 2020 and before. Folks that look at patients as market share uh, and that do not want to have that market share disrupted, uh, particularly from uh, from non-local or out-of-state actors. We think that's uh, an inappropriate way to look at it. Uh, we think that patients deserve to have access. Uh, we think that there's a tremendous healthcare uh, worker shortage in this country. And that the only way that you're going to increase access to care ensure folks across the country, across the spectrum, have ac access to care, is to use the efficiencies of modern technology to do so. Uh, so it, uh, frankly speaking, it's, it's those folks that, uh, that seek to uh, go back to the market share that they had uh, before the pandemic. That's unacceptable. And despite any of uh, the arguments that they might have, I think it usually tends to come down to that. And so luckily we have patients we have uh, providers that are acting in good faith. We have public opinion. We have policymakers on our side that allow us to overcome those uh, those that are viewing it as a market share issue. Uh, Sal, you want to talk about uh, how, sure. how did you overcome resistance in Florida? Sure, and I'll, I'll preface this by saying what we encountered in 2019 compared to the landscape right now is far, far different. I think the, the pandemic put telemedicine in such a position for exponential growth that a lot of the barriers and obstacles that we were encountering in the lead up to getting the law passed just aren't there anymore. But two things I'll point to that were very helpful for us. And you kind of alluded to one of them a little bit ago, Jeff, and that is um, the fact that a, a physician or someone in the healthcare arena oftentimes finds themselves out on their own when they're advocating for more free market reforms. We had the benefit of a legislator who was the chair in the House of the healthcare policy uh, committees that were shepherding this and other bills. He was an emergency room doctor, and he was able to lend his credibility and weight as a healthcare provider to that debate in ways that, you know, quite frankly, policy nerds like me were just weren't able to. And secondly was we had a House speaker that had identified this as his agenda priority for his two years as Speaker of the House in Florida. That in and of itself 
um, kind of kind of brought about a level of political weight to it that had not been brought in prior years or in prior cycles. So those two things together made our jobs as policy think tank people far, far easier when we would go to testify, when we would when we would help legislators with rebutting some of the claims. Yeah, it, it helps that you've got a doctor as your legislator and sponsor and healthcare policy uh, chair. And Christina, how, how did you manage to get every single state health uh, association on board with this? Well, I, I think I'd build on what Sal said, uh, as he had the speaker as an advocate, we had the governor as an advocate. And so the governor was clear from his state of the state that this was going to be a goal of his for last year. And when you have a governor saying that, it brings people to the table. Um, and we were able to have a frank, open and honest conversation. Um, there were some issues that were brought up by um, the, the associations that we were able to make adjustments for. So one of the things that ARMA had pointed out was, ARMA being our state medical association, was that they wanted it clear that a board could remove somebody's registration to provide telehealth if they did something that would result in an individual losing their license in the state of Arizona. So they were being treated the same. And they wanted to make sure that doctors in Arizona didn't have to absorb the cost of these registrations. Um, so where they did make legitimate points about health and safety or legitimate financial fairness points, we were able to address those. Uh, but then when you just kept hearing, well, it's health and safety, um, I would ask, explain that. Uh, explain that to me specifically. What is the health and safety issue? And it, it, you know, I, I think one of the things that helped was a conversation in one of the stakeholder meetings where I did that one thing that they teach you not to do in law school, which is to ask a question you don't know the answer to. And I asked one of the doctors, um, have you ever practiced in another state? And I, I didn't know the answer. And he said, yes, I, I did. I practiced in Colorado and California. And I said, were your colleagues in California or Colorado eminently less qualified than your colleagues in Arizona? And he said, no, they, he had good colleagues everywhere he worked. And I said, were you, was the, the boards to get into harder in Arizona than in California or Colorado? And he said, no, uh, California was the hardest. I said, well, you're telling me it's health and safety, but you just said your colleagues were just as qualified and the boards were just as difficult, if not more difficult to get into. So explain exactly what it is that has a health and safety concern for you. And he, he sat there for a minute and he said, I'm trying to think of the word. And I said, I think the word that you're looking for is competition. And he said, I don't think you'll like that word. And he said, I don't like that word, but if that's what the word is, then be frank about it and stop saying that the words are health and safety. Um, and that kind of broke open the conversation and we were able to, to move along and, and ultimately bring them to support. I just give this one in the interest of time because we're running out of time soon. Uh, Dr. Zinberg had a follow-up question on the malpractice issue. I'm just gonna address this to Christina because he says, so what is the malpractice choice of laws for ex the example mentioned earlier? For example, an out-of-state practitioner registers with Arizona but provides services to an Arizona resident who's now on vacation in California. The registration is an approval to provide teleservices to residents of the state giving the registration. So I assume he means now the person goes to California to see the doctor there. How would, I guess, I, I'm, you tell me, but I would think 
anything that happens in California is California malpractice laws. Anything that happens in Arizona is Arizona malpractice Correct. laws. Am I right? Correct. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, we're, uh, Kyle, you wanted to say something about in-person requirements? Yeah, well, I just it had, had uh, come up earlier, and it's a, a, um, an issue of paramount concern to the American Telemedicine Association, to our members. Uh, frankly speaking, we are strongly opposed to mandating in-person requirements. We think it ends up becoming an access to care issue. It's an unnecessary, clinically inappropriate barrier to care. Uh, it's really relevant at the federal level because at the end of last year, and by the way, the, the longest bill ever passed in the history of the United States Congress, 6,500 pages long. It was a little bit of an extenders bill. It was, a, uh, it was an appropriations bill and it was the last telehealth relief bill of the Trump administration. Tucked in there, uh, which was a total surprise to everybody uh, that works on these issues um, uh, in, in Congress, uh, it, there was a, a provision that made permanent telemental health beyond the public health emergency. And that's a really good thing uh, in that, you know, Medicare beneficiaries are going to have access post public health emergency. Obviously, we want to see Congress act for all the other services that are capable of being done uh, via virtual care. But that was a nice thing to see. Uh, and it was a surprise. But it included a really terrible provision that's going to set an awful precedent. Uh, that immediately became a top priority for us to repeal. And that's an in-person requirement. In essence, if you're a Medicare beneficiary and you're gonna uh, be allowed to be reimbursed for a, a telemental health service moving forward after the end of the public health emergency, uh, you're gonna have to have gone to that mental health provider in the six months prior to you having a virtual care, uh, being able to be reimbursed for virtual care. Uh, no state practice of medicine law in the country has in-person provisions, and uh, states have repealed them over the last decade that had had them previously. Uh, states have clearly begun removing uh, any kind of in-person requirements uh, for purposes of reimbursement. It is a, a, a tremendous barrier to care, and we can't allow this kind of precedent to stand. And so we're urging uh, members of Congress, there are, is a bill that's been introduced by Senator Cassidy uh, of Louisiana uh, and a Congresswoman Matsui of, of California that would repeal that in-person provision. But it's a terrible precedent. We've successfully beaten back this series of state legislative sessions, any consideration of in-person requirements at the state level. And again, the trend is very much in the opposite direction of removing those barriers as it's been done for every state for the practice of medicine. Um, and so it couldn't be more important to the ATA and our members. Um, and it's one that uh, if your audience, the audience isn't uh, really active about it, uh, they should be in making sure that policymakers don't consider going down such a road. The, 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 unless Christina or Sal disagree on the uh, in-person requirement, I don't think they do. Uh, we're running low on time. I know Christina has a, at the bottom of the hour, she has to be somewhere else. So. Um, I want to remind everyone that even though we're running out of time, we could obviously talk about this a lot longer. This is this event is being recorded and will be uploaded to the Cato Institute website. So uh, probably before 24 hours are up, usually don't don't hold me to that. You'll be able to view this uh, on demand whenever you want to by going to the Cato Institute website. Uh, I'm going to use this one question. I'm going to turn it around a little bit. This came from YouTube, somebody named Honest Broker 2020. It's really the kind of the top, the question is a little bit off of the subject we're dealing with, but I think we could use it for a close. 
the person asks, what is the main cause of the disparity between red states and blue states in terms of life expectancy and health insurance coverage? Now, that, that's not what we're talking about here today. But what I want to ask you is, all three of you, do you th how do you think um, making telehealth services more readily available will help to reduce health outcome disparities? That's a good way to close. So why don't I start with Kyle and then we'll go to Sal and then Christina. I'll be very brief. We're delighted at the moment that by and large, red states and blue states are similarly pro telehealth. And, uh, and red state and blue state governors have signed good telehealth pieces of legislation into law. Uh, and obviously, how can it reduce uh, disparities in terms of care uh, between various economic groups or between various states, red and blue alike? Well, it's pretty obvious. It's a, 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 an avenue to allow for folks that did not have access to care previously to finally have access to care where and when they need it with the flexibility that they desire. And so telehealth is the future of healthcare because it's going to be a needed component of the goal that both parties share of increasing access to care and decreasing disparities to, to produce the best possible healthcare outcomes. Sal? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'd like to answer this a, a slightly differently um, from the vantage point of uh, how we view the provision of healthcare in the United States. And I would suggest that rather, rather than saying red, or red states and blue states, I would say liberals and progressives tend to examine healthcare provision through the lens of it being a right, a, a, an, an inalienable right uh, for a person to receive. Conservatives and libertarians tend to view healthcare through an economic lens. That is, it is a series of goods and services provided by individuals uh, that are subject to the laws of supply and demand. And so to kind of answer it, it's my hope that as we continue to trudge forward, whether it's via telemedicine or expanding the scope of the ability for nurses and pharmacists to practice autonomy, autonomously or other things, that we're, that we're moving in a direction that increases the supply of healthcare that's being able to be provided to individuals because I, I got my degree in economics and one of the few things I remembered was supply and demand. As the supply goes up, the price comes down. So the demand, especially in a state like Florida, the demand is going to continue to increase. And unless we tackle supply, we will continually be pressing up on the price points. And that you know, inevitably will lead to this conversation about, well, the government should do X or the government should do Y. And, and as conservatives and libertarians like to say, the government should do nothing and let the markets uh, begin to address uh, the challenges. And so that's kind of how I would answer it. Okay, and Christina, you got about 30 seconds before you have to leave. <laughs> well, so. I'll let myself be one minute late. I'm gonna build on what Kyle said with supply. Um, you know, for Sunbelt states, the new growth states like like Arizona and the West or Florida uh, and the Southeast, 
they were put at a disadvantage by some choices made back in the early 90s about how the country funds graduate medical education, which is very important because most folks who do their residency tend to stay in the state where they did their residency. So you have old growth states like a New York or Ohio or Illinois, where they were able to grow those residency programs uh, before these new federal rules went into place. And all of those uh, were built in and get to stay there even as those states begin to depopulate or grow at a much uh, lower level. Whereas states like Arizona and, and Florida didn't really kick off our high-speed growth until after. So we were set at a disadvantage um, in growing our graduate medical education programs. So we build less of a stock of new doctors than some of those other states do, despite the fact that we're a growth state. So we have to look beyond our borders and how can we attract uh, more doctors to move here, but also where we can't attract them, how can we use uh, telehealth to help fill that gap? Um, so so I, I think part of it, uh, you have to look at that. I would also say that in red states, you tend to see more rural areas than you do in blue states um, and, and getting them access to that specialty care, uh, even if it's by telehealth, is another way to get them the care that they need it in the place that they are. Well, thank you. This was fascinating. I know we, we have many more questions and we can go on a lot longer, but uh, our time is up for today. I want to thank our uh, guest speakers for being here. And uh, again, I want to thank uh, our IT team, David Tassi in particular, for figuring out a way to get Sal to ably participate in our event. Um, and please uh, look for other Cato events in, in the very near future. We're always having uh, very interesting events in, in multiple disciplines of public policy. Thank you very much.